On this episode of China Unscripted, the Biden administration says it wants to work with allies to counter China. But are they the right allies? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And who are you? I'm Cleo Pascal. Pascal, I'm not sure you've confused me on it. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. And you are with Chatham House. Chatham House. Uh, Chatham, Chatham House. Now you confuse me on who I'm with. I am an associate fellow at Chatham House, and I'm a senior non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in D.C. looking at the Indo-Pacific. That, that was a... I mean, this is just exciting to have somebody in the studio with us. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's like pe- yeah. Not just studios, like people. Oh, yeah, people. 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 Yeah. And it, last time I saw you, you were like this big. So now like you can see you. And- Shelly's been eating a lot. She's been growing really tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, before we get into this exciting conversation, first, I got to say, this podcast is sponsored by CuriosityStream. It's great for people like you who love watching videos and learning cool stuff. CuriosityStream has a huge selection of documentaries and nonfiction TV shows. And I'll show you more at the end. So back to the podcast. It's great to have you back on. You're always a pleasure to talk to. Thank you. It's I'm I'm okay. This is like the the patting each other on the back uh, segment. Oh, we, the show. we like that though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mm-hmm. I I brought my extra long arm so I could reach you all because you guys are doing such a great job. And if you come on the show enough, you get a mug. And if you pay extra, you get a signature. Oh, so I'm, I'm pretty. Nobody excited watching about that forger signatures, by the way. <laughs> no. Well, speaking of long arms, the long arms of Beijing. Well done. Thank you. Good segment. That's why yeah, yeah. I'm the host. So, you know, the Biden administration talks a lot about working with U.S. allies to counter China. But the question is, are U.S. allies interested in that? So that's a good question. And uh, different. Yeah, that's why they pay you the, the big bucks. Um, two cups you get a week instead of just one. <laughs> Filled with water. <laughs> we, it depends on which part of the world. And uh, it depends on how much backing they're getting from D.C. in order to do it um, and how much awareness there is of the challenge. Um, So if you're looking at the Indo-Pacific, one area that we've talked about before and that's worth talking about again is the Pacific Islands part of it. And you had Premier Daniel Sudani on a little while ago. It was a great interview and it showed exactly what the problem is. He's the sort of leader that that we hope for in the region. He's democratic, he's honest, uh, he's standing up for his people, and he's not getting the backing that he needs from our primary allies in the area, which would be Australia and New Zealand, or even from the US. And just for context, he's, he's very against the Chinese Communist Party's influence in the Solomon Islands. Yeah, his, his situation is, is the litmus test, I would say, for reactions in the region to China. So one of the things that China does in order to consolidate its position is to make sure other countries de-recognize Taiwan. That's a big priority. So that which when, the Solomon Islands did, which the Solomon Islands did for thirty-six years, mm-hmm. uh, they had a very good relationship with Taiwan, and they need the de-recognization of Taiwan so that when the invasion of Taiwan happens, it doesn't have any of the diplomatic support. When it happens. Not if it happens. So that this is the Beijing calculation. So talking from, from the point of view of how China thinks, first you isolate the country and then you can. it's easier to take it over. So every country with which it has relationships bolsters it, to a, bolsters Taiwan to a certain degree. So it's not, it's often presented in the media as something that's kind of almost funny or whatever, you know, this guy paid this much and this guy paid this much. So they flip back and forth and back and forth. And oh, isn't this amusing? But it actually has very deep strategic implications. Like even when it's a small country, like what's left, Nicaragua, Eswatini, 
the Vatican. The Vatican. Yeah, and we'll see how long the Vatican. Oh yeah, well, I mean that yeah. one's that one's coming down. That's shaky. Yeah. yeah, and and a lot of a lot of the remaining ones are are in the Pacific, in the Pacific Islands. So they are affiliated with the U.S. Two two of the three U.S. freely associated states. We could talk about what those are still recognized Taiwan, and that has implications for. Uh, flight paths and intelligence sharing and uh, U.S. ability to base in those regions. It's not, it's, it's not a minor thing. So the Solomons recognized Taiwan until 2019, and it flipped in 2019 to China a very, in a kind of a surprising way. And I think we were caught off guard here sort of in, in North America because we had assumed Australia and New Zealand were on top of it, uh, especially Australia primary area of responsibility from a Five Eyes perspective. Uh, soon after, Solomon's flipped, Kiribati flipped. And these are these are locations. World War II, this was the site of the Battle of Guadalcanal in the Solomon's. This is uh, Macon and Tarawa and Kiribati. These are highly strategic locations. And so having them fall more under Chinese influence is, is incredibly problematic from a strategic perspective. That's why we have this Five Eyes architecture where Australia and New Zealand are supposed to be taking a look at the area on our behalf. They're sort of the ones in charge of the Pacific, so, supposedly. Yeah. I mean, these are these are all post-World War II semi-colonial constructs, um, but there is a, a physical reality to it, which is the uh, cables which are transmitting all the information in and out of the countries physically land in these countries. So you can have signals intelligence that are based there that get theoretically gives you access to what's going on in the countries. Before it was satellite, but now it's more the cables. Um, and they, they also position themselves as the lead on the analysis of the region for partners and not just the five eyes. So when there was a coup in Fiji uh, and the Indians wanted to know what to do, they were talking to people in Australia and relying on the advice of the Australians, which was not great advice. So they're kind of the, the have been the entry point for uh, non-Soviet bloc, non-Chinese countries analysis into the region. And under their watch, we've seen country after country flip to Taiwan. We've seen huge BRI projects. We've seen ports getting developed. So the, the zone has been drifting towards China. And the Solomons is a very good example of that. Well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, I asked you about the Biden administration saying it's going to work with U.S. allies. And I think a lot of people, when they hear that, think, oh, America's European allies. I, and I, I don't know what the Biden administration means if they're thinking from this well, Eurocentric they, world. They came out with this whole uh, the sanctions against the China for the Uyghurs, right, situation Using was mostly, with Europe, right? Yeah. And you come out and say, you know, the most important things are, you know, these tiny little islands in the Pacific, India, who cares? Why? Why are they more important than European allies. So this is the difference. The 20th century was very much the Atlantic century. So the focus, the strategic focus was the Atlantic, um, the U-boats and, you know, the sort of who, the positioning in the Caribbean and all that sort of, that, it was, it was the, the Atlantic century. That was where the trade was. The trade was between the Americas and Europe. The 21st century is the Indo-Pacific century. Most of the thriving economies are in the Indo-Pacific region, and the securing of the sea lanes has to be in that area. That's why the free and open Indo-Pacific is essential. And and China, right? I mean, clearly. Yeah. So, you know, we're not, the, the big threat and the big gain is all in the Indo-Pacific zone. Um, so there's a question about what role the 
Europe plays. And the problem with the EU is it's only as good as its weakest member in terms of policy on China. So, mm-hmm. you know, they buy <coughs> off. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, I Get honestly couldn't stuck in your throat. I couldn't hear the subtle beneath the Did you have Greece stuck in your throat? No, ah, I think it was I, Germany. I, I, had, I had Germany stuck in my throat. Oh. But no, it's also Greece and Italy. There's a also, lot. Also and and France. I mean, let's let's not forget to blame the French. So, wow. how long do you have? <laughs> uh, the French are the French among all the Europeans are by far the most advanced on their Indo-Pacific policy because they have French territory in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific right, Ocean. Right. Mm-hmm. And they, they're kind of broke. And one of their main industries is uh, weapons sales. And another main industry is energy. So both of those are, uh, are potential growth areas in the Indo-Pacific. And they've been establishing relationships in the Indo-Pacific region for a very long time. The French-India relationship is very old and deep and strong. They've been doing space cooperation since the 50s and 60s. Oh, wow. Well, so mainly what you're saying is Europe and European allies, the U.S., really is they're not they don't really have any connections or influence in the Indo-Pacific, which is where everything is happening. So it's even, right now. It's, it's even more complicated than that. So going back to the French. So if you're looking at uh, U.S. India developing deeper relationships, you'd think the Europe would theoretically want that. But actually, the French don't want that. Because if India and the U.S. get closer together, that's a reduction of the French role and potentially a reduction in French arms sales into India. Hmm. Right. So there's a lot. So it's a very weird situation where actually the interests of China and Paris in some sectors may be aligned. Wow. And so it would be for for France, it's more imperative that they have these weapon sales rather than the greater issue of containing the Chinese Communist Party. France, the government, the role of the government of France is doing what's best for the French people in the French economy. Right. And, right. and unlike us, the French can't print their own money. They can't just print trillions of dollars to spend on stuff. It's no. a, they gotta, they're constrained, so they got to sell weapons. Yeah, we're not on the baguette standard yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're, they're very um, good at trying to find that niche. And we did this, uh, this research project at Chatham House. Uh, and one of the things the French said was, we have lower conditionality, political and military conditionality, when we do our deals, which means we'll sell better stuff to worse people than the Americans will. Lower conditionality. Is, it's a great way of saying lower moral standards. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and this, is, this is the issue, though, because it goes back to your first question about allies. And goes to the Solomon Islands about moral standards is we will go around talking about moral standards. But when you've got a guy like Daniel Sudani, who, when the Solomons switched to China, said, my province, Malaita province, will wants to stay related to Taiwan because we believe in democracy. We don't believe in authoritarian governments. Um, we're Christians. We don't we think that China is, you know, anti people of faith. And he really stood up for those values. And then he got sick and he needed help. And then where were our values then? Specifically, he, he was diagnosed with brain cancer. He, he, was, he was diagnosed with uh, suspected something in the uh-huh. brain. Okay, so, so potentially. Yeah, and he needed a CAT scan. And uh, his own government wouldn't give him the, wouldn't facilitate the treatment. And this is an, an interesting component of the exporting of China's social credit system, right? Because basically it was Chinese government pressure on their proxy 
government in the Solomon Islands to say, you don't, you know, you don't back up the CCP, you don't get health care. Mm. Right. So it's an indication of things to come. This one little case, the Solomon Islands case, if you start pulling at the threads, it shows you a lot of things, not about uh, just about us or about the allies, but about how the Chinese operate and about what's going to happen to people if you don't back them up. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. and as, as you were saying, the, the West was not there for Sudani in health-wise, like the U.S. obviously didn't do anything, but neither did Australia or New Zealand. So the New, Ze- the New Zealanders, nothing, like n- nothing. There hasn't been any coverage, nothing. Somebody came after me on Twitter to try to discredit my coverage. That's all we've heard out of the New Zealand strategic community, <laughs> a mild Twitter backstabbing. That was That's what we heard from New Zealand. Awesome. Yeah. Um, the Australians, to their credit, and this is what gives hope, is uh, there were elements uh, in the Australian system that were appalled that their own government didn't back him up. So they, there was an article in the Australian, Sky News did an interview with him. Um, tr- yeah. That's true, yeah. Yeah. So trying to say, we have to help people like this. These are, if we, and because one thing is this values argument. The other is the strategic argument. You don't fight it in the Solomons, it's going to move closer to you and you're going to fight it in your own country next. Well, it's like the Philippines when the U.S. back in 2012, I think it was, didn't do anything when the Chinese essentially occupied Scarborough Shoal. That sent shockwaves throughout the region saying that, you know, the U.S. will not back you uh, against China. And so that, you know, radically shifted the calculation for a lot of countries that, oh, the U.S. isn't going to help us. We have to make nice with China. And so this Solomon Island situation is a similar thing. It's, it's very much so. I mean, if we're, if we're going around running these democracy education projects in these countries and they say, OK, if I stand up for democracy and if I stand up to the Chinese, am I going to end up like Daniel Sudani where I'm going to be left to die if I get sick? You know, like because you're you're not going to back me up. Like it, it, it's such a it's such an interesting case where we are so clearly being called out for being hypocrites. You know, New Zealand will spend tens of millions of dollars in the region, ostensibly to train people to be honest, democratic, accountable leaders, and here they've got one for free, right? And he needs a little bit of help and crickets. Very interesting. Yeah. And he did ultimately, it was Taiwan that actually helped him out and like had him over for for the CAT scan. Even more interesting than that, it was Taiwan. But the way that he got into Taiwan was uh, an Indian strategist. Mm. Yeah. Heard about the situation and and, uh, Professor M.D. Nalapat from Manipal University. And he said, this is a democratic, brave man of principle who we recognize from the Indian perspective, because we're also trying to stand up to China as somebody who is on the front line of this fight, just like we are. And he had hosted President Tsai when she was Dr. Tsai to come to his uh, university. And so he knew he had access to the president's office and he called the president's office and that was how it happened. So again, this was countries that we don't normally put front and center in terms of alliances in our, I mean, they they are pragmatically, but in terms of our rhetoric, standing up for the values that we should be standing up for, and creating a situation that that is the right thing to do. Yeah, no one in the U.S. when they hear America's allies, they don't think India, and they wouldn't think India is a back channel to Taiwan. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think one thing that's very 
interesting about this this discussion about New Zealand and Australia as part of the Five Eyes, the security alliance between the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. Intelligence alliance. Intelligence alliance, yeah. Um, is is how Australia and New Zealand have responded to the threat of the Chinese Communist Party is very different. Yeah. But how is that playing? Because in the case of Daniel Sudani, neither did very well. Yes. But there's hope on the Australian side. So mm -hmm. in a lot of countries, when you're dealing with China, you tend to have um, the defense intelligence and security community that's very concerned about China and the political and economic community that's like, let's make money. And The Wall yeah. Streets, the yeah. city of London. Yeah. And, and through those campaign donations affecting the political scene. Okay. So, and this was very much the case in Australia. This is why the port of Darwin, you know, was leased to Landbridge. And, but then a whole bunch of coverage started to come out in the Australian press ab about these like dodgy deals. And it was a very interesting case of the intelligence community and the, and the media working together to try to clean up their own system. And it's had some effect. That never happened in New Zealand. It hasn't happened in Canada either. Yeah, I mean, I'm not just playing. We'll We'll get to the Canadians. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so there's kind of hope for Australia. And this is why when you're talking about the Pacific Islands, you know, if you're in D.C., you're talking about the Pacific Islands and they talk about our allies in the region, they talk about Australia and New Zealand as if they're hyphenated. Mm -hmm. Right. So we'll mm -hmm. talk to the Australian New Zealanders like it's kind of one sentence. And I'm starting to think that it might start to make sense to disaggregate them. Like, I, I think there's some situations where it's not helpful to have a New Zealander in the room. What I'm saying now would give heart attacks to a, a lot of different people in a lot of different locations, but I'm which which people? <laughs> so, I mean, not you don't have to name names, but like who who would be who would be like so upset about you, you don't want a New Zealander in the room? Well, New Zealanders. Well, New Zealanders, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you'd be. But surprised. the sheep will be happy. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, even in so in Canada, so I I, I talked to people in the, in Argyle briefed our equivalent of um, department, State Department about these issues and have said, you know, it helps our overall security, including the security of Australia and New Zealand, if we take this more seriously and maybe don't kowtow quite so much to China and give people like Daniel Sudani a bit more leeway. And, uh, and the Canadians will say, we can't offend the Australians and New Zealanders. And I'm saying, maybe we can offend the New Zealanders. <laughs> right. I, I think God. it's always okay to offend New Zealanders, but but also this is similar to our experience because in 2000, in the spring of 2018, well, the fall down there, we went to Australia and then to New Zealand and we had very different experiences. Uh, for example, like we talked with, there were a lot of people we talked with in, in Australia, including a few people in government. Who, I was uh, invited to speak at a prestigious Australian think tank. Yeah, and you interviewed uh, someone from the Liberal Party, which is their conservative uh, people, and then you interviewed someone from the Greens. the Green the Greens, which was in a, a local uh, Daniel uh, David Shoebridge, uh, and like you had this kind of across the political spectrum, these people who were like, okay, we really got to stand up to China, and they're in government, right? In New Zealand, I had spent as the producer, I'd spent a lot of time trying to reach out to get someone, it's like one person in government. Okay, if not someone in government, maybe at least some like journalist or like think tank person and crickets. We talked to a dairy farmer in New Zealand though. Yes. That was the only person we could get to talk about China, which was fantastic. He was a great guy. And the milk, oh, that was, the, that was great. Yeah. yeah. We digress. 
but no, but 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 the point is that yeah. like New Zealand's politically and and media wise, we felt a very different um, atmosphere in regards to, to mean, talking. And, and this was even before the, the big shift in Australia about the right. China. It was just it was, it was just it beginning. Was, it, it was there. It was it was definitely yeah, there. Yeah, but it wasn't we what it was. On the we like went to Clive Hamilton's book As launch, right? but this was so, still before they were like, oh, we probably shouldn't allow foreigners to well, contribute to politicians. It was before they had actually passed the law, but mm -hmm. they were already talking about yeah. it, so it was definitely in progress. In New Zealand, there were definitely people who were concerned about what's happening with China, but they were also concerned about being on camera talking about that. Yeah, a lot of real estate problems in New Zealand too. But I know some people, I've heard people say that maybe New Zealand shouldn't be in the five eyes at all. So that, that's that been discussed. There are logistical reasons why they are in terms of kind of, the again, the locations of installations. <laughs> I mean, that's where Mordor is. We have to have somebody there. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but, you know, the, I mean, if you were reconstructing the five eyes now, Mm -hmm. You know, you might be looking more to Japan or, you know, so, something like that. I've, I've heard some people yeah. are suggesting, hey, maybe Japan could be yeah. a replacement. Yeah. And which China. Ooh. And and this is so this is this is the, the thing. So there are two elements to it. One is if we're disaggregating Australia, New Zealand, then what we might want to do in terms of effective outreach to the Pacific Islands to give them more alternatives to China, make that a quad project. Mm. Right. So then you can bring in some of those other other elements from India and from Japan and and you still have Australia. So you're not necessarily insulting the New Zealanders. You're just saying, you know, we're going to go with the quad on this. So we can plus with you on some projects. But, you know, this is going to be. Yeah, that's it's very interesting. The quad, is, it, it leaves out New Zealand. Australia is there. Australia, Japan, India, the U.S. So what is like, how does New Zealand see this? Do they want to continue having this influence over the Pacific Islands? Like, how does Australia and New Zealand see their role there? Uh, see, you, you didn't did disaggregate. Well, I mean, <laughs> you see how automatic wanted, it is? I want to know both okay. because okay. I think how the Pacific Islands also see both of these countries and how they're, like, I feel like it might be different, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's a great question. So I'll tell you what, so this is what I think. I know you don't think there's a political correctness in the context of talking about New Zealand and the Pacific Islands, but there is. So this is, you know, this again is not going to get me invited to a lot of lunches in Wellington. But um, what I think, and this comes from their literature, is uh, they they were perfectly happy to blow up the Pacific Island Forum. Now, the Pacific Island Forum was a grouping of 18 countries in the Pacific, which included Micronesia, Melanesia, Polynesia. The, the Micronesian ones are kind of more associated with the U.S. And there was a, this just happened last year, there was a vote for the president of the Pacific Island, for the head of the Pacific Island Forum. And the Micronesians put forward a very good candidate, Gerald Zakios, who had been ambassador to the U.S. and who came from a country that recognized Taiwan, the Marshall Islands. So the New Zealanders and Australians wanted... Uh, Henry Puna, who came from the Cook Islands. The Cook Islands is part of the realm of New Zealand. I mean, that's the term for it, right? It's it's an in, sort of independent country, but sort of affiliated to New Zealand, like the Freely Associated States. And it came down to a vote, and there was a one-vote difference, and Puna won. And three countries made that one vote possible, Australia, New Zealand, and France. France via mm. New Caledonia. Okay? The French. Yeah. And the Micronesians had said, if you don't it's our turn. You, you're, we feel very marginalized in this organization. If 
our candidate can't be president, there's no or head of head of it, then there's no reason for us to be a part of it anymore. And we will leave. And so Pune came in and they've been leaving. Four of them, four of the five have put in their papers to leave the Pacific Island Forum. Okay. Now, I think I think that that was one of two things. That was either one extremely bad intelligence on the part of Australia and New Zealand, or they're perfectly happy to cut off the U.S. part of the Pacific and consolidate their influence in an area where they have already more influence from their perspective, which is Melanesia and Polynesia. And in the context of New Zealand, it's Polynesia. And the language around the speech that the New Zealand um, foreign minister gave, there's the five eyes related speech that sort of raised a lot of hackles. But the language implies to me that they see New Zealand as the leader of Polynesia. And Polynesia goes from New Zealand up to Hawaii. It's a very big strategic stretch, a lot of different countries. And as the entry point for China into Polynesia. Mm. So they want, and they've said this overtly, defense or security and economic integration with Pacific Island countries, specifically Polynesia. So if the Chinese want access into that area, they would do it through base in New Zealand. So for the bigger context, for people who might not quite understand this, is that this is basically because of China's influence on New Zealand and New Zealand's influence over all these Polynesian nations, this is China's foothold into crawling, controlling a huge part of the Pacific and really up to the U.S.'s doorstep at Hawaii. Uh, I think the news. I, I think that's how uh, China sees it, and in fact, it's it's detailed in a book by Jian Yang, who uh, became a member of the New Zealand Parliament after having taught for ten years at a spy school in in the, in, in sorry in China. If you remember, do you remember that case? Yeah, I do, do. do you remember the episode that we actually did on that? Well, I do. Yeah. But, Yes, but but yes. The, the I listen the, to your episodes. Yes. They're they're pretty good. You should. <laughs> I recommend them. <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll check it out. Okay. So what's what's interesting is is strategically like China is kind of blocked in case of war from the Pacific by the first island chain, which is like Japan, which has islands that go all the way down almost to Taiwan, like Okinawa, and then you have Taiwan, and you have the Philippines. And these countries are the first island chain from China's perspective that block its military from accessing the Pacific. But if China can build military bases in Polynesia, then China has now just completely sidestepped that entire first island chain that blocks China's navy. So now China's navy in peacetime can send a lot of navy and station them in the Pacific. And then Japan is in a pincer attack instead. Right. Fish, fishing boats, not Navy. Oh, right, fish, right. Fish, Ma fish. Maritime <laughs> militia. Uh, yeah, this is so interesting to me because, like, no one has heard of the Pacific Island Forum. Nobody has any idea. I mean, you're talking about Americans. I'm, I'm, I'm sure probably more than just Americans yeah. have never heard of that. Like, if we, if we went to the streets of uh, Canada and said, hey, what do you think of the Pacific Island Forum? What do, you, what do you think the response would be? It's a great restaurant. I can't get a table there. The sushi <laughs> is delicious. Well, but but so this these places that we like don't even think of in the Indo-Pacific are so critical for like the entire future of the world. Like this is where the battle lines are being drawn between China and democracy, essentially. It's so interesting watching that happen at, because it's kind of like how they blew up ASEAN in a lot of ways. I mean, mm. ASEAN still exists, but they kind of... By they, you mean the Communist Party. The, yeah, China basically went in and managed to split it up, right, according to whichever 
countries they could get to align on them on their interests. And then the whole forum is kind of more or less crippled when it comes to dealing with China because they already have so much. One of the French uh, diplomats called it multi-bilateralism. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> so explain that for the audience. So it's so it's, a, it's supposed to be a multilateral institution where everybody's speaking to each other, but China views it more as a hub and spokes thing where China's talking to each of the other ones and then sort of they're they're the center of it and and it's it's actually how they deal with the European Union. If you want to disable oh, the yeah. European Union, then you pick a Greece or, you know, whatever and you and you disable it that way. So you you've got those bilateral relationships that uh, infect and disable a multilateral forum. Yeah, and back to your island chain thing. So, so we so that fir- that that first island chain concept is why Taiwan is so important to to China. So they'll they'll talk about reunification, blah blah blah, all that sort of stuff. But it's strategic, right? It, it's it's they need that uh, permanent physical location. It blows a hole in the first island chain. But like you said. If you move out to the second island chain or third island chain, which are these islands that we're talking about now, you can come at it from multiple sides. So when when you're doing the scenarios, the war games around Taiwan, you're normally talking about the beaches on the West Coast that face the Chinese coast. Mm-hmm. You're not talking about what happens when they come in from all sides. And, and the model, through the Chinese PLA learns not just from other military conquests, but from other military defeats. And they've looked very closely at what happened with Japan during World War II. So these islands that we're talking about now, they're all islands that saw heavy conflict in World War II. If you look at the extent of the Japanese expansion during World War II, they encompass all of these islands. They encompass, you know, sections of Kiribati and sections of Solomons and all those, you know, all of those, like all of those islands as well. They're trying to do what Kerry Gershanik, who's been on your show, has talked about in terms of winning without fighting. So when they knock down Daniel Sudani in the Solomon Islands and ensure that it is a proxy state, they have won the Solomons without fighting and with our complicity because we didn't stand up for him. Yeah, well, I mean, first they came for the Solomon Islands, but I, I didn't speak up. I'm not from the Solomon Islands. And, and really, who cares at this point? Well, I that's think- exactly it, actually. That's and exactly I think it. we were talking before the podcast about how a lot of people don't understand how many like islands in there are U.S. interests, right? Yeah. In in that area of the Pacific, not just yeah. U.S. interests, actually U.S. Mm-hmm. So Guam is Guam is the west coast of the U.S. Those are American citizens on American soil, which the People's Liberation Army has made videos about bombing. Right, but I mean, we'll, we'll put up a map on screen so people can see just how close to China Guam is. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's, it's so far west. It's actually east. It's the easternmost part of the United States, according to the international dateline. And I think what's really dangerous about this is, you know, so many Americans are used to thinking of the U.S. as like, you know, superpower. We have the deterrence capability. But right right under our noses, we're losing our international power. And if that happens with like when it comes to like China being like, all right, we're ready to fight. We might suddenly find like we we don't have all the cards we thought we did. Yeah, we. I mean, wait, we don't have. <laughs> I don't know how to, how to describe it. You know, it's sort of like if they're if they're playing with those like ninja cards that you kind of could throw and cut people to death with, right? And we're playing fish. Like it's more like that. Like you yeah. know, we're not even doing what we should be doing with the cards, right? So we have cards. We have you know Grant Newsham, who's also been on your show, has talked about you know we have the we I mean the U.S. has the global reserve currency. We have global banking systems. We have a lot of economic levers that we're not using. So 
we we have cards, but it comes down to political will, and I'd say to to an understanding, as you're saying, where is the front line? It's not in the Atlantic. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is, you know, you say the political will, the political will is driven by what the population thinks. And if the population doesn't know what, okay, <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not quite in, uh, in our totalitarian, totalitarian hellscape yet. Uh, I think if the American people and other Western democracies are aware of like the Pacific Island Forum and the importance of these, these countries, then that might be, might be push politicians' hands, but, like, I, I can see how, like, you know, oh, the U.S. is giving millions of dollars to Kiribati. Why should someone care about that in the U.S.? Why? Well, you can, if you if you want, and this is, again, the difference between Australia and New Zealand, you, you can tell that story. The Australian media told the story of Daniel Sudani, which lets the population know what's at stake, which gives the political support for those decisions. Mm -hmm. Or you can kill the story and not have to make that decision. So it's a, you know, if you're looking at the Daniel Sudani case, I mean, mer mercifully, he's okay. He's, his health is okay. But there were a lot of people in Western capitals who would have been perfectly happy if he died, right? That Wellington would have been very happy if this problem just went away. That's how far off base we've gone. When you've got an honest, hardworking, democratically elected leader and you want him dead because it's more convenient for you, you should probably rethink, you know, what you're doing as a, as a nation. Well, and Sudani is not out of hot water yet. There's some rumors that once he goes back to the Solomon Islands, he might be put in prison for treason. Yes. And this raises another issue because uh, Solomon Islands has a history of civil wars and uh, the Australians... Uh, led a kind of peacekeeping force there called Ramsey relatively recently. And if he goes back, he's very popular and he's arrested for treason, there is a chance that the civil war might reignite. And if it reignites, the central government is at this point more likely to invite in Chinese peacekeepers than Australian peacekeepers. And this is something that the Chinese have been positioning themselves for for a while. They've been uh, doing peacekeeper operations in Africa. They say HADR is going to be part of their um, kind of remit going forward. It's one of the justifications for such a big navy floating around the Pacific. So it's not all of the pieces are in place for that to happen. But there's a lack of understanding of how far this has gone already and how quickly this could tip over that uh, we're not we're not dealing with it when it's relatively low cost. Well, do you see a scenario where you have Chinese troops supporting one side of a Solomon Island civil war and Australian troops supporting the other side? No. So you think just Australia would not get involved at all? The cost, the, at that point, the cost becomes very, very high for Australia. Hmm. You know, the, and it's easier for them to say, you know, we're going to we're going to work with them on this and like the climate negotiation type stuff, you know, global cooperation. And isn't it nice that the Chinese are stepping up and taking up their responsibilities as an international stakeholder? Oh, so it would be sold as like a great thing. Well, the, what's the alternative? Well, Australia doesn't want to start a war with China, right? Well, I that's mean... the alternative. <laughs> right? No, no, the war is coming. It's just, you know, I mean, I, I don't know whether you've seen that graphic of somebody put out on on Twitter, some Chinese guy put out on Twitter, the in, entire Chinese Navy, all of the boats, the official boats, not even the maritime militia, arrayed against the Australian Navy. So you can find that graphic. It's like 
four rows of huge, massive ships and aircraft carrier, whatnot, and then like the little Australian Navy. And it's it's that kind of psychological warfare, one of the three warfares, right? That plays into the unrestricted warfare, that plays into pushing comprehensive national power, that makes it seem like it's a good idea to let Daniel Sudani die. That it, that it's just impossible to beat the Chinese Communist Party. That's what they want you to think, but it's totally not. We, I mean, we have all these cards, but the starting point has to be to want to do it. Hmm. Political will, which means people need to pay attention and say something. <laughs> uh, well, talking about how the Chinese Communist Party likes to put up this, like, they're they're so powerful, the psychological warfare. When China talks about we're going to take Taiwan no matter what, is that psychological warfare? Absolutely. Like, that they don't actually mean it. Like, that it's not like, oh, well, we definitely need to unify with Taiwan. We will take it no matter what. They want to make it so that everybody else is scared of stopping them from it. Yeah, they do. That does that doesn't mean they can. I mean, again, it's you know, if you array um, a whole bunch of missiles, including American ones, and and say the cost is going to be really high. And this is where India becomes interesting because uh, in in Western countries there is a, a limited, understandable, limited tolerance for loss. You don't want your people to die. I mean, that's, you know, so it's very easy to rationalize appeasement, right? And maybe they'll eat us last is kind of the, the way that is that is often put. How did appeasement work in Nazi Germany? Well, that's it. So the, so one country that that is actually willing to fight and did fight and lost 20 men is India. Yeah. Right. So if you're looking at at the whole map of the Indo-Pacific, and not just maritime, but land-based also, India is the only country that has a couple hundred thousand troops on the Chinese border. They can open up a second front. They can cause pain at, very effectively. And they have a, a will to do it because for there's never been, historically, there hasn't been a problem between India and China because there were buffer states. There was Tibet. There were other countries in between India and China. Right. So and and that's one of the reasons why Mao did the palm and five fingers thing so that he could, you know, grab that whole air, try to grab that whole area. But they're in the Indian strategic community. They're talking more and more about, you know, maybe it's time to liberate Tibet again, or at least a huge chunk of Tibet, like two thirds of it or so. And and wow. that implies that there is a, a, a willingness to fight because they know what's at stake. Just to contrast that to the U.S., you know, like in the U.S., it's like. There are people like, ah, should we defend Taiwan? Should we not defend Taiwan? India is talking about taking back parts of Tibet. Yeah, I mean, That's like there so was different. We did that episode where we talked about these people who are writing op-eds about how, like, it's not worth, like, you know, yeah, it's not worth sending American soldiers to to die on some rocks or something. No, well, rock, I mean, right? that, was that was South, South China Sea. That was Scarborough Shoal. Yeah, yeah. But, like for Taiwan, it's like, well, this could cause a nuclear war. You know, that kind of thing. Where yeah, it's but like. But look at it. If we had, if they had been stopped at Scarborough Shoal, we wouldn't be talking about Taiwan. Yeah. Right. So if we and if we if and if Taiwan falls, what are we talking about next? I mean, again, Grant Newsham wrote that thing. If Taiwan falls, it all goes red. Right. So there are five treaty allies in that area. So you don't def you don't defend Taiwan. Are you gonna what are you gonna do about the Philippines? What are you gonna do about Japan? Yeah, Japan is saying like if Taiwan that's an issue of survival for Japan. That's what uh, the Deputy Prime Minister Taro Aso just said. Yeah, right. which which justifies Japan's use of military to defend Taiwan because mm -hmm. they Japan sees it as life or death, and and, and Japan 
some of Japan's islands are actually quite close to Taiwan, some of its southernmost islands. Yeah. yeah. And Japan actually has very good relationship with a lot of the Pacific islands. So if you're looking at Micronesia, you're actually better off working U.S. and Japan with the Micronesian countries to give them, uh, you know, alternate economic development alternatives. We already see it in Palau. So Palau is a freely associated state, which means it's an independent country, but it has agreements, deep agreements with the U.S. And they've offered a base to the U.S. And the U.S. provided uh, vaccines to all of the freely associated states. So they they haven't had the COVID curse. This has been the Biden administration, correct? Yeah, it's it's been consistent through the through the change in administrations. Okay. Yeah. Um the Trump administration was the first one to put a seat on the Security Council dedicated to Oceania, Australia, New Zealand, and Antarctica. So it was the first one to really say we need to look at the Pacific Islands. And it was part it was part of the understanding of the region that came out of that sort of Matt Pottinger national security strategy. And Pottinger, of course, was a Marine. And the Marines know the last battle in the Pacific very well. It's sort of in, it's in their blood, so they know what those islands are strategically and how this is the front line between Asia and last time it was Japan, this time it's China, and how important they are. So Oceania was front and center in terms of how to construct that strategy. So they were have were very good at building up those relationships with especially the Micronesian countries, and it's been continued now, and and this is why, especially compared to what the U.S. has been doing you can see the problems that are happening with New Zealand. So the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, uh, has, which is the defense money for defense, has provisions for looking at Oceania. Uh, there's an a, a act through Convert, I think Blue Pacific, uh, Ed Case out of Hawaii has been pushing this as well. It's, it's bipartisan. So there's stuff happening within the U.S. But the, the question is how to do it. Do you do it with Japan, just Japan in the north? Do you bring in the quad throughout, the, throughout all of Oceania? And I think it takes a, a really deep rethink about allies and about who actually is going to be there. I mean, there's something that one of the somebody said is, you know, when you go through the window to breach the building, are you sure the guy's going to be behind you to back you up? Mm. Right. I mean, I kind of want to go back to what you were saying about all the things that happened in the Pacific region under Australia and New Zealand's watch, like BRI and all this stuff. Why do you think that happened? Do you think they weren't paying attention? Do you think they were welcoming China coming in? So there were two there were two factors. Uh, one was, I think a, a lot of them were fine with China coming in um, for their own economic benefit. They thought this is this these are the sort of decisions that went into Darwin, for example. Um, the The other was, uh, and you see it particularly with New Zealand again is there is a definite arrogance and condescension towards the region. And uh, the idea that, you know, they can handle China and they can handle the Pacific and they know what they're doing and they know the Pacific better than anybody else. And, you know, we're going to broker all these deals and and it'll be fine. So I think it was a combination of, uh, you know, arrogance bordering on um, racism in some cases, combined with not actually thinking China was a serious threat. Yeah, it's it was it's ugly. And and you asked about what the people of the, how the people of the Pacific see it. And the people of the Pacific, I mean the the ones that I've spoken to, they see the in- increased interest from China at least initially as beneficial because it increases their negotiating position with other with other countries. 
so they can get more out of Australia and New Zealand and the U.S. and Japan and stuff by raising the China threat, right? They're, they're not stupid. Yeah, but the problem is once they get sucked into sucked into it too much, then uh, they there's a problem because at the same time China's doing something the others aren't, which is pushing in newly arrived Chinese at the base of the economic pyramid. So in a place like Tonga, Chinese have taken over about eighty percent of the local retail sector. So if you're out in a village on a remote island and there's one shop, it's probably run by somebody from Fujian who has no interest in your country. He's there, he and his family are there for five to seven years, suck out as much money as possible, and then either move to Australia, New Zealand, or go back to China with the cash. So they're not going to give you credit. You know, if you need baby formula for your baby, you're not going to be getting it from the local Chinese shop in the village that's the only village you and your family has ever known forever. So that doesn't m engender warm feelings. Well, so China obviously has made a lot of inroads into these countries, and particularly everything that Australia and New Zealand have done or failed to do is is definitely worrying. But from what you're saying, it does sound like there is still a lot of hope in the region for getting them back on the side of democracy against the Chinese Communist Party. The people of the region are, for the most part, first of all, fundamentally democratic. I mean, it, they, the, the democracy takes different forms, but these are societies where, if you can imagine, if you if you grew up on an island in Tonga, everybody you've ever dated, everybody you've ever went to school with, every teacher you've ever had, you can run into them at any moment walking down the street. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> So there's no, these are very, these are societies that have evolved to be consensual in a, in a very deep way, actually. It's a different, it's democracy on steroids. It may not look like democracy to us because we're used to kind of these mechanisms, these, these institutionalized mechanisms of democracy, but they have to get along. Like they have to, which is fundamentally what democracy is, where you kind of, the consensus of the people. Um, that doesn't sound like democracy in the U.S. right now. No, it's a, it's a, it, it's that's it. But it's a different structure, and that needs to be. And the second thing is, most of them are very religious, right? So they're they're Christian. So in, it, again, Tonga, when there were flights, there were no flights in or out of the country on a Sunday. Right? Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, they're like no fooling around religious. Okay. Um, so those are two things that China isn't. If the two most important things to you as an individual are faith and family. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not China. That's not China. So the natural affinities are there. And that's this is sort of my argument to, to colleagues in Australia or New Zealand is what you actually want in those countries is you want people who are difficult to deal with. You want kids who are scared of their parents and parents who are scared of God. And they're going to be hard because they believe in something. They believe in each other and they believe in something bigger than themselves. And the Chinese can't handle that. It's going to be difficult for you, but it's going to be an even playing field. And if you believe in the things you say you believe in, you will win. They will come to you. They will want to work with you because of who you are. Right. So help them achieve strategic autonomy. Help them be themselves, strong and independent and as autonomous as they can be. And believe in the things you say you believe in about yourself. The and freedom, will, democracy. Yeah, and it will be a natural alignment. You don't need to control them. You don't need to break down their defenses like Australia is doing with tariffs and social reengineering programs, that sort of stuff. If you break down their defenses, the Chinese will come in on that pathway. 
So now the trick is for America to do what it says it believes in. Yeah. America and Australia and New Zealand and Canada and Japan, we need to be who we say we are. Now, you uh, you mentioned Canada there. And, and through much of this podcast, you've been saying we, we, we when talking about the United States. Hmm. But but of course, you, you're hiding a dirty secret. <clears throat> yes, I am. Uh, so so my dad's a dual citizen. So can I can I hide under that uh, umbrella? Um, so I'm using we in the royal we uh, context. And I can use the royal we because I'm part of the Commonwealth. Um, so it's more of a five eyes we, if I may, or NATO we. Actually, it's not a NATO we. It's a five eyes we. Um, so it's um, <clears throat> us. Right. So so what is Canada's role in all of this? Zero. Yeah, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your efforts. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so so Canada is pretty much not going to be uh, a major player in helping us stop the communist threat. Well, specifically, I'm talking specifically about the Pacific Islands. Canada's in the process of putting together an Indo-Pacific policy like every other country on Earth. You know, I'm, I'm sure Switzerland's putting together an Indo-Pacific policy like everybody's putting together an Indo-Pacific policy. Um, and there are u- unique things that Canada can do, actually, because a lot of the uh, internal problems that Pacific Island countries have around land, customary land ownership and, and tight societies all is, are actually things that Canadian First Nations have gone through for, for the last 150 years. So there's a lot of uh, compatibility in those cultures uh, within Canadian First Nations and uh, countries in the Pacific, uh, resource management, uh, how to deal with colonial <laughs> oppressors of various sorts. Which I would have thought New Zealand and Australia would have those things as well, because it seems like they talk about, oh, that was bad. We're different now. Yeah, you'd think. But then if you look, for example, at in New Zealand, uh, who talk about how great they are with the Pacific, 30% of Pacific Island children live in poverty in New Zealand. So if you can't even help your own Pacific Island residents or citizens prosper within your system, how can you justify going to their countries and telling them how they should live? Right? And the same is true for Canada. And I'm and and I'm, you know, I'm not saying the Canadian government should do that outreach. I'm saying the people of the First Nations, reserves and whatnot, who've had to deal with the same sort of who've had to deal with the Canadian government could actually help the people of the Pacific Islands deal with Australia and New Zealand. Right? So there are ways that we could uh, work with the Pacific Islands for, in a very unique way. One is First Nations. The other is as a bilingual country, French and English. A lot of the Pacific is English as a second language, and a lot is French as a second language. So we can bridge both. We have in Quebec, the province of Quebec, if you are a French citizen, you can come and do graduate school at the same low cost as a Quebec citizen, Quebec resident. Hmm. So we actually have a lot of people from French Polynesia, New Caledonia, studying in Quebec. So there are these bridges that could be built. But again, it comes down to the political will, the identification, the, the actually doing what we say we want to do, which is you know create a networked world of democracy and openness and transparency where like-minded countries and like-minded people work together for the benefit of all, the security and prosperity of all, and... Uh, and give hope to the world. But I guess it would be harder for Canada and the UK as members of the Five Eyes. It seems like they don't really have the presence in the Pacific. Good point to bring up the UK. Well done. So the UK has reopened three high commissions in the Pacific. And they permanently 
put one of their aircraft carriers there recently. They've just read the 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 Queen Elizabeth has gone into in, or is going into the Indo Pacific, and they've said I think two will be permanently stationed in the region, and they've commissioned a new um, kind of or will commission a new sort of equivalent of a royal yacht, which can kind of float around and do soft power type stuff. Um, and yeah, so they've reopened uh, Tonga, Samoa, and Vanuatu. And I, I suspect one of the reasons is because uh, there's been problems with our other two Five Eyes partners in terms of intelligence coming out of the region. This post-Brexit architecture, the although it was announced before Brexit, is to find these little leverage points where the UK becomes more useful in an, in an intelligence perspective to the I, to the U.S. I'm seeing the inevitable end where this is the UK uses the China problem to gain power, and then once again, America is back at war with the UK. Do you see it? Yeah. The do I, you see it? <laughs> And, and then the the French sit and go. <laughs> <laughs> it's they're the masterminds <laughs> all right along. There. Well, Whoa. we'll we'll get back at them by fighting the British, winning, and then not helping the French. Oh, there you go. There's Is that a, a, that's a French that's a, that's Revolution a, joke? It, yeah, it's a it's sort of <laughs> very specific historical reference. Although technically that was before the War of eighteen twelve. We don't need to get it. This is not history unearthed. Uh-huh. Also, the French Revolution was basically a communist revolution. We not, don't, not we yet. Don't support that. Not yet. History and Earth. We're, you're getting, we're, 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 do you know what the foundational myth of Canada is? Huh? You, you know what? So Canada's National Day is the 1st of July. Mm-hmm. Okay. 1867. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that, does that date mean anything to you? Well, July 1st. Or 1867. China. Yeah. And Hong Kong. Yeah. Well, we predated that, but yeah. Yeah, no. So what had what had what was just winding down here? The U.S. Civil War. Yeah, and Lincoln had said one war at a time, right? (laughs) So we were going, oh, (laughs) okay, just a second. Are you? So you you finished that one? Are you? Are you heading up to us now? And so um, John Wilkes Booth was a Canadian assassin. (laughs) I think history unearthed. (laughs) Oh no! Some 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 of those guys passed through Montreal actually, and Montreal was a center for Confederate financing. And we've discussed this before. We're we're bad guys, um, <laughs> but we had that. So so there was a the confederation of several Canadian provinces came together at that time in to improve our defense capability against the U.S. So our founding myth is defensive bureaucracy, like that's that's Canada's foundation, right? So you're like war of independence and freedom and all this sort of stuff, and we're like, okay, maybe if we sign these papers, everybody will leave us alone. Canada's creation is, I hope the U.S. doesn't inv- invade. Yeah, well, yeah, that's it. Wow. Yeah. So we were talking about how the U.K. and Canada not in the Pacific mm-hmm. as much. Well, except this is the thing. The U.K. suddenly is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So this is the post-Brexit policy. But do they have, they don't really have territory in they the have Pacific. Pitcairn. What, sorry? That's the old mutiny on the Bounty Island, Pitcairn Island. They do, they, they have... As you can see from this map that's currently being displayed, <laughs> they do have a, a bunch of old agreements like the Five Powers Defense Agreements, which allows basing in Malaysia and Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. They, they have they have the potential to have strategic architecture in the region. They have soft power in the region. And they have... Th- so this is the thing. There's, there's a bunch of different types of superpower or, you know, magic powers in international relations. There's military power, there's economic power, and there's intelligence. And the, the the Brits are very good at that, have been forever. And by putting in these new high commissions, 
they they opened up when Boris Johnson was foreign minister, he announced nine new high commissions. They were all in Commonwealth countries, and most of them, all of them, had a population of less than two million. They were little overlooked strategic pivots, hmm. and three of them were in the Pacific. Iswatini was another one, actually. So it so there. I think what it I think the idea behind it was to say the big boys are back in intelligence. Okay, this, this is just looking at it from the outside, what the logic would be. And so that becomes more useful to the U.S. So it's it means that the U.K. is the most relevant European country in the Indo-Pacific for American decision makers. And it's not technically European anymore. Well, that's it. it it's outside, But they also become useful for the other Europeans, right? So if they're the ones, because you, you can go to France... But you can, you know, the polls might go to the UK if they want to know more about the Indo-Pacific now as they're starting to engage. There's a lot of weakness on the uh, UK-India relationship, but the UK-Japan relationship is very tight. And we'll see what happens where they decide to base. They're very good in, they're very good in places like Oman and Bahrain. They're, I think they're trying to pick up those levers that were dropped during the EU period and, and see what they can do in the Indo-Pacific. And this is to counter China, or are there other factors involved? I, so I think uh, it, it's to become a player again, and that goes with economic development and strategic positioning and that stuff. You need to keep a very close eye on the UK and China because of the city, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Huawei decision was was very encouraging. And the next thing to watch for is whether they'll kick the Chinese out of nuclear infrastructure. Hey, remember that uh, nuclear power plant that's happening right now that's leaking radiation and the French company wants to shut it down? Yes, I do. Yeah. Anyone watching from the UK? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, what about Canada? <laughs> it's very, very kind of you to keep mentioning uh, this country. No, we're, we're actually doing it to embarrass you. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no. Because so we've established uh, how the UK I, I, is. I brought the you Pacific. cookies. Didn't, didn't, didn't that work? Didn't Maybe. I bring, brought you the Canadian no, cookies? No, that's why I'm, give, I'm anxious to hear about what Canada is doing to get, uh, you know, pivot points in the Pacific, Indo Pacific. Nothing. <laughs> That's what I'm getting. <laughs> but there's a lot of potential with those first island and uh, the first nations people. We did okay. We did a quad plus one exercise of submarine hunting. Uh, off hey. off of uh, Guam, I think. Yeah. There you go. That sounds fun. Canada's pulling its weight, and it doesn't have a huge population, so it's not that much weight to pull. Yeah, we have. We are a huge security vulnerability on your northern flank. <laughs> I mean, we really are. The Vancouver stuff is off the charts. There's a uh, a commission that's been going on looking at uh, money laundering in Vancouver. And one of the uh, RCMP guys who testified was saying, 10 years ago, we saw the Chinese triads, the Iranians, and the Sinaloa cartel coming into Vancouver to work together on money laundering and fentanyl and uh, yeah huge. yeah yeah we just did an episode about that yeah, we, here's uh, you, the thumbnail you interviewed check uh, it out sam, sam cooper, cooper who, sam was, cooper, who yeah. wrote a book on that yeah, and yeah. It was, uh, that was definitely like a pretty horrifying yeah, yeah. podcast yeah. Yeah. yeah so we can't secure ourselves so i'm not quite sure how i don't you know do you really want us to play with you further afield like like help us help ourselves domestically and we we ordered 
the Chinese vaccine. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That says something. We ordered the first fact that we ordered it. We put a down payment on it. And it was only because the Chinese couldn't fill the order that, you know, my sister wasn't getting Chinese vaccines. Oh, Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Well, That's... I mean, it, it, if they'd waited for the American one, they would have just gotten it for free. I mean, California ordered Chinese masks, so I'm not sure we have like a... Yeah, there's there's a lot of stupidity. But actually, overall, I'd say this, I'm, I'm, I'm walking away from this podcast more hopeful than I usually do, because it sounds like there's still a lot of things that can be done. Absolutely. Especially with the Pacific Islands, you know, and a lot of it is just very technical, like Kiribati, which is one of the countries that flipped to China. You know, if there were direct flights now, if you're in Kiribati, like Tarawa, site of a major battle in World War II, you have to fly south to Fiji and to Australia, New Zealand, usually to connect to the to the rest or most your your advanced education, advanced healthcare, all that stuff tends to go down through Australia, New Zealand. If the flights went north, they could go to Guam. I mean, it's it's just technical things like that. Um, Alex Gray uh, wrote an article saying that possibly extend COF- these compacts of free association like you have with Palau and whatnot to uh, Nauru, Kiribati, and Tuvalu and and just consolidate north. You know, and, and a lot of that is said, it's really technical. It's Kiribati, I think now the uh, U.S. embassy responsible for Kiribati is in Fiji. But if you switch it to Majuro to the north and you get the flights going to the north, then it'll happen. It'll happen kind of organically. They they don't like being tied into that system. So you give them an alternative. Um, it's and they feel and they feel culturally more com- comfortable in an, in the Micronesian environment anyway. So so what you're calling for is a type of I don't know defensive bureaucracy. Yeah, exactly. As a good Canadian, <laughs> I'd say a lot can be done with pieces of paper and uh, and route maps and and whatnot. Um, and if you can get it done right, then you can avoid you know the bloody war of independence. I, I was just going to say this is makes me think a lot of like uh, what uh, the U.S. did in a bunch of the Eastern European countries that are tied to that had that what seventeen plus one. Yes. The the whole little the multilateral bilateral thing China was doing with Eastern European countries, and it began the Trump administration. I think the Biden administration kind of carried on, but like just just doing well, very little, just kind of opening the up. Trump meeting with was it the Romanian president or somebody? There was some... it, and it wasn't just it, the the meeting. It was also just like opening up uh, economic dialogue, and that that completely shattered. Uh, well, didn't completely shatter, but it really hurt China's uh, grasp on the region. I mean. What, what did Lithuania just do with Taiwan? The Taiwan is opening a representative office in Lithuania. Yeah, like that's that's crazy. And it was just a little bit that the the Western world had to do. So it sounds like the same thing is in, in the Pacific as yeah, well. It just doesn't take much. China's been very good at lighting fires on our turf, causing problems for us. And, you know, it's not hard to light fires on their turf. You know, everybody can open up a Taiwanese office. Everybody can, you know, get rid of the Confucius Institutes and bring in... Taiwanese language teachers, you know, talk more about Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong, <laughs> you know, uh, you know. So there's there's so many things that can be done. Support a guy like Daniel Sudani. That's a problem for Beijing. That's a big problem for Beijing. It's not only the right thing to do; it gives it strategic leverage, right? So right now, it's actually relatively low cost to fight on the political warfare battleground, right? They're winning 
on the political warfare battleground. But fighting back is not very high cost. It takes a little bit of thought and a bunch of political will. And we lose on political warfare battleground, we are going to go to the kinetic battleground, and that's going to be very high cost. And How that's where th- lives will be lost, yeah. How do you think we increase the political will? So this is uh, this is all sorts of stuff they were talking about before. I mean, the reason I was a little bit... Um, unclear about my support for the statement that, you know, the, the people don't know. I mean, American people know. There's a, the American people, if you go to Amazon, you know, and you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see over and over, is this made in China? Is this made in China? Because people understand that China's uh, strategic weight comes in large part from its economic weight, which comes in large part from us, mm-hmm. right? And they don't want to feed that machine. They would prefer to pay 10 cents or a dollar more or whatever to buy some. And it may not even be that much more at this point. So getting things like, um, you know, a place where you can buy stuff that where, you know, it's not made in China, you know, just little things. And there's uh, legislation, congressional legislation to try to get online retailers to list country of origin that is being fought by Amazon and others. And so, you know, call your congressman or woman and kind of make a statement that this is important to you. Um, so there's the, the, the people know the connection into the political system because there's so much money from, from Chinese political warfare agents, uh, it's quite strong, but people need to be reelected. So if this becomes a political issue, if you talk to your politicians, your media, if you are aware of how much Chinese political warfare is affecting your daily life, that mask you're wearing, what you're seeing on your social media feed, what you can or can't say on YouTube, you know, then, you know, you can push decision making in that direction and give the courage to those who need the political will to stand up for this sort of stuff. Even all the sister city things happening in the U.S. Yeah, it's got to stop. Who wants to be a sister city with like a genocidal <laughs> center <laughs> like my sister city mayor and, of san francisco my right. sister city is a room chief uh, like that's, yeah you know but that but and that's another thing is you know there's discussions about not buying stuff from xinjiang okay because it's you know you know gen- yeah, genocide yeah. you know but that's like saying we're not going to buy it from dachau but we'll buy it from berlin like it's all part of the same system oh yeah and plus they're already you know like sending Uyghurs to work all over China. So plus there's already also prison labor and slave labor from a lot of other non-Uyghurs in China. So it's not- We we need to decouple from China. We need to, and this is where words are important, deparasite. Ooh. Yeah, because it's not a coupling. A couple is like two equal people coming together in a partnership, blah, blah, blah. The Chinese economy is- fundamentally parasitic. So it comes in, it sucks out your capital, it sucks out your intellectual property, it sucks out your resources to bring it back to its own state and grow its own state and leave you weakened and defenseless. So the Chinese Communist Party is like a tick. And if you don't get it early, it'll bury its head in you. And then it's much more difficult to remove without getting Lyme disease. There is another parasite. I I wrote an article about it and I've got like a terrible memory. So I can't remember what the parasite was, but it's like this incredible parasite that, that like goes in to, to make you infertile and like take over your whole system and controls you like a zombie. Oh, like a cordyceps. Sure. 
fungus. It's where it's like it's on ants or other insects and like it infects and then takes over your brain. Yeah, so I'd, I'd go more with the zombie analogy than the tick analogy. Mm. Well, oh wow, that's that's great. Well, zombie yeah. fungus. So, so yeah. de-zombie from the uh, from the Chinese economy is is more what you're going at. The decoupling. But so what you're saying is is World War Z the book is actually based. On, it's like a stick like of prediction. It's an economic book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a That's book what right. Brad Pitt was trying to tell us <laughs> about all along. That's Before right. they took the source of the infection away from China yeah. in the movie. And then, and the other thing is, I mean, this is this again is something Carrie Gershonik has been on your show has talked about is the correct use of language. Like organ harvesting, it's not harvesting. Like it's, you know, this is not a this is not the right term organ to organ pillaging. It's it's the forcible re- removal of organs for profit from living beings. <laughs> like it's like it's it, about just killing people for organs. Yeah, well, for profit. Yeah, I mean that's that's the element of it for for fun and profit. Yeah, it's for it's looking at people as as spare parts. We allow the this kind of language to obfuscate the horror of the situation, and that reduces political will. So part of the kind of political the, the pushback against political warfare is accurate use of language on so, these issues. So instead of involuntary prison labor, we just call it slave labor. It is. Well, that's we do do that. Well, yeah, but I mean for everything. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like the idea. No more, no more organ harvesting. No harvesting is just it's just not right. That's yeah. just not. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that terminology ever came into play. Actually, hmm. um, harvesting. Yeah, I think probably. It seems like organ harvesting itself was like, I think what activists try to do is say it was forced organ harvesting or something like that. Yeah. Like, do you, the key is that but, it's not harvesting. It's yeah, and the harvesting implies it's going to grow back. Right. Like there'll be another crop next year of livers. Yeah, I know that some. Well, in China, there using. is an, always another crop next year. Yeah. Because yeah. just... when they were done killing Falun Gong for their organs, they went to Xinjiang and started doing it with the Uyghurs, right? Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think. But surely they'll stop there. Well, yeah. I mean, this this is the thing, and and the and understand that if they will do this, if the system has rationalized doing this to their own citizens, they will do this and more to everybody else. That's why there's no compunction about letting a Daniel Sudani die if he's inconvenient. You know, it's not. This doesn't stay within the borders. This is a fundamentally expansionist policy. Right. So it's not this is why the Indians know it's not going to stop with a few border posts in Ladakh. Like the goal is, you know, you get to a position of comprehensive national power, number one, which includes strategic hegemony and economic hegemony and political hegemony and psychological. I mean, all of the unrestricted warfare elements, including those three warfares, are to that end. So we have a choice, you know, do we fight it now on the political warfare front where it's relatively low cost? It is some cost, but it's relatively low cost. Or do we wait as the zombie grows and expands its army and then it it's the, you know, we're, we're those World War II maps come to life again? Yeah, what I find with trying to tell people about the threat of the Chinese Communist Party is... It sounds too, like, it sounds too extreme for people, you know, it sounds... Too bad to be true. Like, yeah, or it sounds like, oh, well, you know, this is a lot of things people have with, like, oh, well, like, the Western countries were imperialist or colonial, and China is not. 
a colonial power, an imperialist power, you know? Do you think this is still as much of a problem after the coronavirus? I mean, I feel like talking about... Yes, it's still a problem, I think Chris. it's still a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's still a problem. Yeah, I had this... I did just... I was on the... I flew up here and I was sitting next to somebody from El Salvador. <laughs> they were like, yeah, U.S. wasn't great to us. Like, mm. Correct. You know, but that doesn't mean that's okay for other countries to be not great. And in the meantime, you know, you have options now that people in China don't have. And if you if you want to see what it will be like, look at Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, you don't have to look. There's a kind of the abstract argument, which, yeah, it's hard to get. It's hard for people to understand how different other people can be. I mean, that's it's a problem in relationships. Like, you, you know, you can have somebody who's, who's dating somebody who really sucks, and you're like, they're not going to change. I'm like, oh, no, they'll change. You know, we'll just sign this climate change policy and they'll be fine. We'll get along. We'll cooperate well, you know. But We're in an abusive relationship with yeah, China. Yeah, you are in an abusive relationship with China. And a parasitic zombie-like relationship. Now, you've been saying we for most of this podcast, well, but that part you said you yeah. are in an abusive relationship. Well, because they've already got us. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're done. But um, yeah, so using this kind of accurate terminology can help. And when you're having these discussions with people and they say, well, it's not as bad. And then you say, well, explain Hong Kong to me. You know, explain why Tibetan monks are lighting themselves on fire. You know, explain what's happening and why two very different administrations say this is a genocide. So we don't want to see it. But one way of dealing with that, again, on this pushback on the political warfare is accurate terminology based on specific examples. Truth is on our side. The oh. most important thing. It really is. And that's the thing. We can't question our own values. We can't think they're just slogans and they're not real guideposts. That ties into a whole big slew of things in issues in the United States about, you know, what 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 is the US founded on? So that's your definitely your problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's a you, not a we. Well, <laughs> It'll become everyone's problem very soon. But, uh, but and, and I would also say, I mean, as, as an outsider who's been stranded in this country because of coronavirus for the past year, um, I've learned a lot about the U.S. over the past year and about U.S. exceptionalism. And it, it actually really is exceptional. I mean, Tell it, me more. Well, it's a, <laughs> it's a country that was founded by people that not only didn't trust each other, but didn't trust the government, Right. Yeah. So the founding the founding documents are very they're de- they're deliberately defensive of individual liberties in a way that no other country is, and uh, with an understanding of both how government can go off the rails and how the mob can go off the rails, right? So it is. Uh, I mean, sometimes you know people will ask. You know, I'll talk about China's grand strategy, and they'll say, "Oh, well, what is the U.S. grand strategy?" There. There isn't so much a grand strategy, but there there is a roadmap towards a more perfect union, right? And yeah, it it's it very imperfect, and it's you know gotten better. And I would argue that you know you would this period in history is better than it was fifty years ago, which is better than it was fifty years ago, which is better than it was fifty years ago, which is better than it was fifty years ago, which is really all you can ask for from a society that there is a striving towards this more perfect union. And the relationship between state, the states, and the federal government is something also I didn't really understand until 
this this last year, which is another interesting check on on power, on this balance of power. So there are mechanisms built into the system that are unique and that are worth understanding better. It's not a perfect country. There are no perfect countries because there are no perfect people and people are what makes up a country. I mean, this is also in the founding documents, right? Yeah, I think it's interesting, like, you know, when they were, the founding fathers were making these documents, like, they must have also been looking at each other and themselves and like, I don't trust you. Yeah. I don't trust myself. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that's correct. That's the right thing to do. That's why it can survive. So I think that, you know, there 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 is a need to understand the things that that make this country, your country, exceptional and why they should be fought for and defended and why there isn't this false equivalency. You know, there is a mechanism built into the foundation of this country that allows it to improve. The foundation of the Chinese Communist Party only allows it to be more authoritarian and communist and controlling and that stuff. The, the trajectory is not the same. It's founded on blood. And yeah, and it's it's founded on lies about how human beings behave and what that's the relationship- communism, that's Marxism, yeah. Yeah. So trust yourself, be yourself, and uh, and support the people around the world who believe the same thing and want the same thing. That's it. Yeah, I guess until like the U.S. gets its its own like culture wars or whatever. Oh, I mean, I don't know if we're ever going to be absolutely done with. Yeah, but know. as long as we are busy, so busy, like you know. What you said about, hey, the country's getting better, There, there's a whole argument about that not being the case, which is absurd. And if we can't even get our own heads screwed on straight, how is there ever going to be political will to challenge the Chinese Communist Party until it's too late? I mean, late? that could be kind of a chicken and egg situation. But we, we also don't necessarily have to, to deal with it because, like, you know, the founding fathers came together despite major policy differences uh, and decided that, like, okay, the priority is independence from England, and we're going to at least come together to to fight that. And then they dealt with other issues. I mean, yeah, you know, they, as they as they went on, they I mean, kind of hated each other. Yeah, I mean, like like slavery obviously is the is the the biggest elephant in the room there, but there were many other issues that they couldn't agree on. But at least they're like, in this issue, we must hang together; otherwise, we shall hang separately. That sort of idea. So at least when irrespective of all the, the chaos going on in the U.S. right now, like we can still come together on China issues and stand up to the CCP together. And I do believe that we can do that if we if we try. I, I'm not that optimistic about that. I think what you're talking about, if, if, if we don't fix the culture wars happening in this country, we'll just be at each other's throats until it becomes a kinetic war. And then we are all forced to realize, oh, that's a bigger threat. So I don't think they're disaggregated. So I think that there's a, a very big external impetus to exacerbate your culture wars, right? I think there are hundreds of thousands of uh, Chinese PLA people sitting on their computers trying to figure out how it's to use- It's an obvious strategic advantage for yeah. them. Well, so, so you're saying that, that the Chinese People's Liberation Army is making our- cultural and societal tensions in the US worse as part of their I mean we strategy. already have proof that Russia did it. They I mean they yeah. they've been they've been doing this for 
I mean, in the early 70s, Mao invited Black Panther leaders over to China. And, right. you know, and, the, and the Black Panthers were, I mean, th and this is the thing. It's a response to a legitimate problem, but it's not a legitimate solution, right? The problem is real, but Maoism isn't the solution, right? So unless you, you know, you do have to address the legitimate problem, but with a solution that isn't China. And that's the, the you know, or appeasing China or giving into China, whatever. So they've got they've got half of it, uh, but the but the other half they can't deliver that solution. I mean, the you know, if the Black Panthers had actually gotten their way and what they wanted, they wouldn't have been creating a society that was more equitable for their people, for the people who they said they were representing. Uh, so, but just to, but that's just about how long China has been injecting itself into creating. Uh, that sort of, they weren't they weren't reaching out to peaceful bridge building organizations. They were reaching out to you know more uh, divisive organizations, and very overtly. I mean, you know, there's that acupuncture clinic in the South Bronx in the early '70s that was run by the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, and they called themselves Barefoot Doctors, and they had posters of Mao on the wall. So, and and some of them went for training in China. And as they were doing acupuncture, they were doing political education. So it's it's been a component of Chinese political warfare against every country that it sees as a threat, including the U.S., for decades and decades and decades. Yeah, yeah I mean, if people in the U.S. are under the notion that the U.S. is the most evil country in the world, then why fight the Chinese Communist Party? It's won't happen. Yeah, and and they don't even think about it. And you I mean that's the point is you don't even think about China. And this this is why so the uh, people in the Indian strategic community think it's very likely that you'll see an increase in terrorist activity because if you're terrorist activity where against the US and against Europe mm -hmm. because if the security establishment is distracted by the terrorist threat then there's less attention paid to China. And China uses proxies and that, I mean this is the China Pakistan relationship. Right. So, I mean, and others, but India knows it through the China-Pakistan relationship. So the, the Pakistan attacks, some of them backed uh, on India, seem to have Chinese logistical support, if, if not more. So um, that's why you end up with huge vulnerabilities across the board. And this is what political warfare is. Right. It's not it's it's everything short of old school. We line up with guns and you line up with guns. And if you have a vulnerability, if you have a social vulnerability, if you have an economic vulnerability, if you have a political vulnerability, the Chinese Communist Party will identify it and try to make it bigger and more destructive. Mm -hmm. So are we ending on a message of hope? Yeah. I, th I feel we were almost there at one point. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the hope is we're right. <laughs> you know, we, our, our systems are better. You know? Yeah. 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 I, I like that. And you know, for me, I'm always right, even when I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> I do, as a Canadian. I do. Yes. Yes. You're, you're right. No. Uh, yeah. I think that is is important to remember. Yeah. It's just this. You know, freedom and democracy is superior to Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. Socialism with Chinese characteristics. I don't know why that's complicated. <laughs> like, I don't it know. shouldn't be. No. And and 
And if you believe it, you should be ready to stand up for it and fight for it, whether it's in the Solomon Islands or on in your you know, city council. And ideally at a time when it fighting for it involves, hey, let's build an airport here instead of let's send troops here. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, like you said, it's what matters is truth. And if you're interested in the truth, this episode has been sponsored by CuriosityStream. CuriosityStream is a streaming platform with dozens of collections of fascinating TV shows, including award-winning and original program. For example, happiness is on the plate. It's about a chef in southern China who serves food based on the traditional Chinese idea that food is medicine. He visits farmers in the countryside demanding only the freshest natural ingredients for his unique dishes. With CuriosityStream, you can watch that and thousands of other streamable documentaries and nonfiction shows on topics like history, nature, science, food, technology, and travel. So click the link below and use the code CHINAUNSCRIPTED to get our special deal, just $14.99 for the entire year. You can watch Curiosity Stream from your phone, tablet, or computer anywhere, anytime. So click the link below and check it out. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. I'm Makanejda. And thank you for joining us, Cleo. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Real people. <laughs> it's new for me, too. <laughs> well, we, we're not real people. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> You're real to me. <laughs>